Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled The Secret History of the Premier League. Now this is really following on from my previous podcast where I had posited that Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish had really created the modern Premier League as we know it in terms of their management at Newcastle and Blackburn Rovers really changed how the man the role of the manager in the 90s and 2000s in other words english football had really historically been built upon the great man theory of history so in other words the the best team in the 30s was arsenal and they had been built by herbert chapman the best team of the 50s had been manchester united who'd been helmed by sir matt busby you in the 60s you had Billy Nick at Tottenham. In the 70s, you had Revy at Leeds. You then had Clough at Derby and Nottingham Forest. You had the Liverpool boot room that had been sort of incorpor- started by Bill Shankly. So you, you always had these great men who would come to a club when it was you know either declining or it was in the second division and then build it from the ground up. They were managers, but they, they were a lot closer to owners than modern day. In other words, they were the ones that would deal with the, the youth system. They were the ones who would deal with the club kits in terms of the design. They were the ones that would set the players' wages. They were the club. Yes, there was chairmen who would sign off the bills and put money into it, but really, if you wanted to build a great English team, you needed a visionary manager. Someone who was going to run the the whole operation. And Sir Alex Ferguson is really the last of that. He's the last of the Mohicans. And by almost irony, he's the most successful one of the lot. And the, the the infrastructural dominance that United had in the early 90s really, in effect, creates the revolution that... Dalglish and Keegan birthed. In other words, that neither of them had the inclination, temperamentally, or the skills to match Ferguson. They weren't willing to spend five, ten years building these clubs up to eventually get to Manchester United's level. And so as a result, they almost they, they take shortcuts. The, the whole point is, is that Kenny Dalglish doesn't go to Blackburn Rovers unless the Jack Walker is there with you know the the money required to get them from a team that was facing relegation to the third division to ones that win the champion that win the Premier League in ninety four ninety five, Kevin Keegan doesn't come on his white charger to Newcastle in the early nineties unless John Hall and Freddie Shepherd are there with the money to allow you know him to essentially pull off what he his dream which is to take Newcastle and you know. By proxy himself as the you know as the Messiah to take them to the next level to the top of the English game, so really if you if you just focus on Dalglish and Keegan and how the impact they had on management, so in other words, instead of having you know the amount of time managers have now is you really got. Um, anywhere between 6 to 18 months to make some form of progress or else you will be out. That is a an unintended consequence 
of their management and of the process that they essentially begetted to the Premier League. So, But focusing on them is only half the story. Really, it's the ownership behind them that is the secret history of the Premier League. The Premier League is really a story of ownership. The owners create, you know, break away from the Football League to create the Premier League. It's the owners that go to Sky Sports and get them to blow ITV out of the water in terms of the rights, television rights, for the Premier League. So as a result, you get a situation whereby previously the owners were always important in the English game, but now they were much more important because the manager was no longer someone who was going to be there for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And as a result, really, if you now look at, if you start in 92, 93, the day one of the Premier League, and you ask the average man on the street who are the three biggest teams in England, the likely response you would get would be Liverpool, Arsenal, Manchester United. You now do the same question, you know, 30 years on, and the response you will get will be somewhat similar. You will get okay, there's a top six, and in that top six, you have Manchester United, Liverpool, and Arsenal. They are your true north in that regards to the history of the Premier League. And the, the story of their ownership, it is very insightful. So in other words, you start with Manchester United. They have success, instantaneous success in the Premier League. They're dominant. And the ownership has Sir Alex Ferguson in place. He is a traditional English... He is Scottish, but managing in England. So he is the traditional, massively important manager who will run the football operations and who will guide you to long-term glory. The ownership, then they rebuild Old Trafford. They then expand it to being the biggest club stadium in England. They then increase the, the brand awareness of United. So you've got multiple kits, you know, the Megastore, United Cafe, Man United TV. They're the ones who really break the mould in terms of globalising the English game. They're in the vanguard for that. Now with Arsenal, they're more conservative, more traditional. You know, they've still got their, you know, their leader in George Graham, who's again of the traditionalist school of English management, I will come in, at, I will then build the club through signings and all the rest of it, and I will lead you to glory. But eventually he falls with the Bung scandal, and eventually the only way that they can compete with United is through an ownership decision. In other words, David Dean decides that there's no one domestically in the English game with the failure of Keegan, with the failure of Dalglish, who is going to be able to challenge Manchester United. So they then rip up the playbook and they go and get Arsene Wenger. And the skills that Arsene Wenger had is what you know pushed you know Arsenal into the stage where the Premier League became a... Duopoly. It became Arsenal versus United. That was the late 90s and early 2000s. So in other words, their bit of reform pushed Arsenal towards success. But they're still a traditional run club. Arsene Menger still, in many ways, shape or form, follows the George Graham, follows the Sir Alex Ferguson, follows the tradition of you have one manager who will then run the outfit, who will even be who will be choosing the doorknobs on the new training ground. 
that kind of level of, of leadership. Which then really brings you on to Liverpool. They're the ones who don't reform. If you look at the, you know, the, the playing squad that Liverpool had in the early 90s, the infusion of talent in terms of Jamie Redknapp, in terms of Robbie Fowler, Steve McManaman, Rob Jones, they had plenty of, of actual talent. But the organisation of the club is nowhere near as advanced as Manchester United. So they don't capitalise commercially. Their stadium and infrastructure is not as profitable. It's difficult to redevelop Anfield because it's you know, hemmed in by housing, whereby Old Trafford has miles of space and all the space in the world to redevelop the stadium, build the megastore, the Red Cafe, you've got, you know, and Trafford Park, you can develop it quite easily. They're not able to do that. And what they don't do, which Arsenal do, is to make a evolutionary decision. They don't pick the right managers. They still try to keep the boot room going and eventually it's crumbled and they do bring in Hulier, but it's almost a little bit too late. Arsene Wenger has pushed on Arsenal and Liverpool were just too far behind really to compete within that sort of before in the late nineties. Even if they had the actual playing staff that should have been more competitive. Their decision-making wasn't as profitable in the boardroom and it wasn't as good in terms of the decision they made on the football operations side of the business. So really, consider them in, in terms of the 90s as, you know, the United States, Great Britain and France, economically speaking. They are traditional big powers. You know, they're on the UN Security Council. What this podcast really is, is is discussing the BRICS of the Premier League. Now, BRICS was Brazil, Russia, India, China and Singapore. They were the emerging powers of the 90s economically. And the Premier League, really what you're talking about is Blackburn, Newcastle, Leeds, Spurs and Chelsea. To an extent, Man City, but that's a slightly different one. So really discussing their ownership and how they, you know is the real underlying story. In other words, if you were to have a Ken Burns documentary about the Premier League, these are the teams that you would focus on. Because where they are now will tell you everything you really need to know about the Premier League and its history and where it's ending up, and possibly even where it's going in the future. So if you look at it with Blackburn and Newcastle, you have the new brand of owners. Sir Jack Walker and Sir John Hall. They have large amounts of money and they will push it into the club and they essentially and essentially they are short termists. In other words, they will spend money on the infrastructure, so they rebuilt St James's Park, they rebuilt Ewood Park, but there was almost a limit to what that they They're what you could really describe as benefactors. So in other words, the with Sir Jack Walker he is a steel magnet who's a local boy made good and he's nearing the end of his life and he wants his hometown team to, to get glory. So he puts in the money, so he builds the stadium up, but there's a limit to what he can do. There's an understanding that Blackburn is not a huge place. It's not the it doesn't have the long term infrastructure to be able to be competitive forever. So in other words, they pour in all this money and that then basically sort of 
the, the, the crest of the wave is 94-95 when they win the Premier League. Within a few years, he's passed away. Blackburn have been relegated and he leaves the club in a trust. And the trust runs the club well, but within its means. So they're able to get back into the Premier League and they have some success as an upper mid-table team. They win a League Cup. And effectively... It's a sort of power play mixed with local pride. And in the end, it's a nice story, really, for the people of Blackburn. They did have this success. And they then sort of reached an, a form of equilibrium where they've got a you know, sort of respect to members of the Premier League, but they're not expecting to compete with the top level. So your United, your Arsenal's, your Liverpool. And that's really, you know, fair enough. With Shepherd and Hall, it's slightly different. I mean... They rebuild St. James' Park. There's more of a... There's more scope with Newcastle. You know, they have a rabid fan base. There, There's room... You know, the city is on the up. And, you know, with things like the tram, with you know, Newcastle Falcons rugby team, which he also owns, they rebuild the city centre stadium. And they're slightly more cannier. In other words, they get... Keegan in, and he's a you know when he turns up, he galvanizes the fan base, and they're slightly more cannier than Blackburn. In other words, Newcastle United, one of the iconic sort of images of the nineties, is thousands of Newcastle fans all wearing the replica shirts, the black and white stripes, and there's an element of profit making towards it. They want Newcastle United to be a sustainable build it business. They're willing to put large amounts of funds, but they, whereby with Sir Jack Walker, you could almost sense that I'm willing to put in this money to deliver this success for the town. It's, you know, it's patrician style. In the, on the understanding that it's not going to last forever. I want Blackburn to do well after I've passed on. However, I'm accepting that, you know, they will not maintain the, being at the top of the Premier League forever. With Newcastle, there is more of a sense of, with the size of the city, with the fan base, there is potential there. So even when Keegan leaves in his sort of very standard, dramatic, emotional, you know, immolation, you then, you know, Kenny Dalglish pitches up. Because Kenny Dalglish thinks, actually, I can't really compete in the long term with Blackburn, but I can compete at Newcastle. But even then, there's an element that eventually the amount of money that you require to compete with not just United, who are, you know, this financial behemoth, but you've then got Arsenal with, you know, the success that Arsene Wenger brings. And eventually Newcastle, a little bit like a wave, they sort of roll back eventually. Again, they're just, you know, still, you know, ambitious, but not in the same way because of the money that was required it's not sustainable in that regards. So really, they're on in terms of the first wave of Premier League ownership, they're in the, I suppose, the category of local benefactors, and eventually with, who have a limited amount of. That have limits. In other words, once they reach the point where it can get dangerous, they will pull back to a level which is far more. That's far more sustainable within the actual. And so, really, when you when you look at Newcastle, 
I think the classic thing to note is that Keegan, with his sort of populist demagogue, I suppose, principles and personality, in other words, he wants the success and he needs it now, and he uses Newcastle, yeah, so John Hall's money to deliver that. But there's no long term benefits to it. The youth system doesn't improve it effectively gets weakened by Keegan's win-now decision-making process. You know, the stadium is, is rebuilt and the club training facilities are improved, but there is still a massive gap, really, of long-term strategic thinking that Keegan will never provide, and Dalglish, his successor, isn't really able to provide. So eventually... Once the first wave of success, the first great sort of Keegan teams that then, you know, kind of blends into Daryl Gleish's team, really is that you get the finishing second, you have the 95-96 team, which have the sort of spectacular collapse, and the next season you then have the success in the Champions League, but that's it, it is run out of steam. You know, and eventually Keeganism under Dalglish gets repurposed into cup runs and mid-table finishes. So in other words, whereby with Blackburn, they just they understand that there's a limitation of where Blackburn Rovers can go in the long term. Eventually, you know, un- you know there's a finite amount of resource that Jack Walker was willing to put into the club and he got the success that he wanted and the infrastructure of the club in terms of the training ground, in terms of the stadium, was a fantastic legacy. And when he passes on, the, the, the Jack Walker Trust runs the club well, but within its means. The problem that Newcastle have is, is that, yes, they have more scope, they're a bigger club, you know, bigger city. The problem that they have is that between Shepherd, Hall, Keegan and Dalglish, there was no long-term strategist. In other words, theirs really was a win-now mentality, and eventually, when that ran out of steam, when you came up against Wenger and Ferguson, those managers were able to rebuild their teams and were able to you know, use foreign scouting with Wenger. With Sir Alex Ferguson, he had you know, the class of 92, and Newcastle were never in that position to match that. Their youth structure was... Yeah, poor, to be completely honest with you. And so they then fell back because eventually the amount of money that was required to keep them even vaguely competitive with Arsenal and with Manchester United wasn't really forthcoming. They Eventually what they needed was a almost a long-term manager who was willing to you know rebuild the youth setup to make the sort of decisions that would have put Newcastle on a long-term footing in the sort of top four, top five English teams. Eventually they find you know someone close to that in Bobby Robson, but the problem that you have with that is is that by the time he he goes to Newcastle, it's the you know, he's not a long-term manager. He's gonna manage for several years, but he's already, you know, sort of sixty-eight when he gets the job. So he's not going to be the long-term manager in the same sense that Wenger was, in the same sense that Ferguson was. Which then really leads you on to the sort of next of the sort of brick owners, and that's Risdale with Leeds. Now Leeds is a, there is, I wouldn't say a strange club, but they're they're sort of difficult to analyse in the sense that 
it's not quite... It, Blackburn is a very easy narrative. You know, they're mired in irrelevance. Walker turns up the money, brings in Dalglish, and they get success. Similar sort of situation with, you know, Newcastle. They're you know, nearly on the verge of being relegated to Division 3. Sir John Hall turns up, brings Kevin Keegan. Money comes in, and they have success. Whereby with Leeds, it's slightly difficult because... They'd had a period of, you know, after the end of the Reavy era, by the you know, 80s they'd been relegated, they then come back up, and under Howard Wilkinson they have a somewhat surprising league title in sort of 91-92. So the last ever, you know, Division One Football League, they are the, the champions. So theoretically, they have a good English manager in Howard Wilkinson. They have a young squad full of talent. Effectively, the Premier League should be, you know, their oyster. You know, the, as we've said in previous podcasts, Liverpool and Arsenal were in sort of managed decline at the time, and Manchester United. They had just picked Manchester United to the title. Yet, in the end, you know, with the sale of. Eric Cantona to United, they're, they're ships in the night, and United go on to this huge amount of, you know, um, you know, a long period of success under Ferguson and Cantona. Leeds United, their, their title defence flounders. And, you know, Hal Wilkinson does a decent job, but they're middle of the pack, and they're not looking likely to sort of kick on and re-establish themselves as an elite English side in the, in the new Premier League era. And then you sort of get Rizdale, and he comes in sort of late 90s, early 2000s, and I, I describe him as sort of English football's Enron. In other words, it's spend money to make money, as long as the success was maintained, it would underwrite the overheads. You know, th- there's no infrastructural spending. If you look at Ellen Road now and Ellen Road in 1995, they look exactly the same. The training ground doesn't particularly... You know, it gets a bit of a a sort of retrofit, but it's not rebuilt in the sense that, you know, Man United's training ground, Al Spurs' training ground. And it's really... It builds on the sort of Newcastle and Blackburn principles. But the difference is, is that with the sort of local benefactors principles is that with Blackburn and Newcastle there is always an underlying common sense about their processes. In other words, Blackburn know that this is a short-term period of success and what we want is that when that money starts to taper off and it's just the Jack Walker Trust running the club that it's run on a sustainable level and that the stadium looks good. So Evil Park is a nice stadium and that there is a way that this football club can still maintain a level of success. That it's not going to be the early 90s success, but it's going to still put them in a position to maintain themselves in the Premier League as and you know, as a viable football club. Even with Newcastle, you spend a load a large amount of money on the training ground. They spent some money on the stadium itself. And eventually there's an under, an impl- implicit understanding that we are not going to be able to keep this up forever. And so they eventually then re... I suppose... The club becomes almost reimagined as a team that's looking to get into the top four and is looking to compete 
but not at the same level as the, the Keegan years. There's an understanding that things have changed and that Newcastle aren't in the position to, to succeed. Whereby with Leeds, there's none of that underlying common sense. They're, they aren't interested in the long term in the sense of what happens when we leave this club, what will, will the stadium look like, how will Leeds United work as a long-term going concern. There's none of that. It's just what their principle is, is that if you keep spending the money, it, you know, the spending becomes obscene because one of, I think, the classic stories that they tell is that they were spending thousands and thousands of pounds per month on... Um, fish tanks and fishes for their offices. The, the point was is that they didn't spend the money on the state. They, no one thought to do that. You know, and they have all of this money and the only thing that they can channel it into is the first 11. And any money le- left over, well, yeah, well, we, we have, you know, we have to look like a big club, ergo we will have thousand, you know, very exotic fish in the boardroom and you know our offices will look fantastic because that's what we should look like a great club not actually what we should do is build this football club for 10 15 years that there's none of that you know it's it's as if sort of kevin keegan was chairman so instead it's like well we have to win now just do what it needs to do keep spending the money and the more as long as the level of success is maintained that will cover the overheads. But I suppose the difference is, is that the limitations that Newcastle and Blackburn came up against in the mid-90s was really the limitations of football at that time period and specific to the English game. In other words, the Champions League was just getting started, but you know, in that era, it was you, know, you won the league you would go into the Champions League. The team that finished second would go into the UEFA Cup. And it's only really the sort of mid-90s when it was the first time that they said, OK, the team that finishes second gets into a qualifying round for it. And so there's only there's a limit... The, the, the money that you would get from Europe wasn't so huge. By the time you get to the sort of Risdale's late 90s, early 2000s, now it's the top three teams and the Champions League has sort of two group stages and there's more and more money coming in from that. It's partially getting there. So in other words, the point was is that what Blackburn and Newcastle effectively realised was that there was no pot of gold at the end for their success. So in other words, they would just keep having to put this money in to compete with the you know, huge scale of infrastructure and dominance that Man United had but there wasn't any money in it for them to win. Just it was winning for the sake of winning. And what Leeds really started to show was that actually you could make money from you know getting into the top three. That that there was effectively a financial gain from finishing second than there was for finishing second in let's say ninety four ninety five there was money to be made and that's where the competitive in other words their expenditure had some reason it wasn't just to finish third it was if you finish third you're getting the champions league which then gives you 20 30 million pounds which you can then plow into the, the first team and that 20 30 million pounds should then get you to second which might then make you an extra 5 10 million pounds or that you know the improvements to the squad then mean you might then get you know 
to the next stage of the championship, which then means that £5 million gets given back. But the problem is, is that at that point, the game wasn't quite globalised enough. The English football only had a sort of limited financial footprint. There wasn't, you know, internet money. There wasn't the say you couldn't, whereby the rights now, you can make huge amounts of money just being in the Premier League in the early 90s and 2000s. It hadn't reached that point. <laughs> so, there was no sort of long-term plan. But with... So with Leeds, it all ends in tears. In the end, the, the money becomes... There's only so much money that you can put into a short term before it effectively... The, 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 the squad was down. In other words, they didn't have long-term managers. You know, David O'Leary was you know a talented manager in certain regards, but he was simply on the crest of a wave. He was basically the assistant manager under George Graham at Leeds. Graham goes to Spurs. He takes over... And he's given all of this money. He's got, you know, he's used some of the, the quality players that came through the sort of Leeds Academy. And he's pushing it as far as he can go because essentially for him, every single bit of, you know, success that Ridsdale was giving him in terms of money and was really the only way in the short term that they could compete with Chelsea, Arsenal, United and Liverpool because there was no long-term basis. There was no way for them really to build the stadium up quick enough. You know, by this point, you know, man, you know, United Stadium is only ever growing. Arsenal with their, you know, the reforms that Wenger has put into the football club were always going to be successful in the long term. So really what Leeds was, it was effectively a, a a Ponzi scheme. And the, the point was is that David O'Leary's managerial career was based on, you know, effectively, the longer that you could keep it up, the more money he was going to get, and the more likely he was going to be able to compete. But with the knowledge that eventually, either the, they would get some kind of stratospheric success that would then almost reset the Ponzi scheme. In other words, the Ponzi scheme would start to make profits for everybody. And unfortunately, the inevitable failing of that was that you couldn't get the success quick enough. In other words, they spent, let's say, £18 million on Rio Ferdinand. That was a transfer that worked. It was when they were starting to spend £10 million on Seth Johnson, who was a solid player, but he was never going to be able to push Leeds into that position. Their squad became very bulky. There was just huge amounts of, you know, there was the wage bill went through the roof and they were still only able to put out 11 players. So eventually, you know, David O'Leary's limitations as a manager and eventually just simply the, you couldn't get success quick enough to basically stem the, the, the financial bleeding. And so eventually it ends up falling apart spectacularly. They have a sort of fantastic Champions League run, but then they don't qualify for the, the tournament the next time. So suddenly the revenue drops through the, through the floor. You, you know, they're never quite there enough to compete for the league title for an entire season. They fall away in the end because United, with their history that Ferguson has brought up of knowing exactly how to win 
a league title. Leeds don't have any of that. None of the infrastructure, none of the organisational knowledge from sort of ninety one, ninety two is applicable. It's almost you know a whole different generation. That's when you were competing for the you know in within the football league. You won the old first division. This is now the Premier League, and United and Arsenal, with their just the sheer size in terms of and the way how they were run. You know, Wenger, Ferguson are bet is a better manager than you know David O'Leary. And eventually the whole thing collapses. They eventually get relegated, and they're now in the sort of financial abyss. But I think one of the, I suppose the story about Leeds is that they'd had that sort of slow decline. And eventually they were just, for a couple of years, were just fighting relegation and they eventually go down. By this point, they've had to shed players, they've had to sell players just to try and you know keep making sort of oh, ends meet, to try and get all of these huge contracts off the books. And so they go down into Division 1, but there's still an element of some of the largest is still sloshing around and they're able to, you know, in their first season back in Division 1, they get into the playoffs. They get to the final and they're playing Watford. <laughs> and at this point, you know, this is the mid-2000s. So the, the, I suppose, hyper-spending and the money that was coming into the Premier League was just beginning. But it was probably maybe five, ten, four, five, ten years away. And... It's the crossroads moment for Leeds United. If they win that game, they're back in the Premier League. The money will then the money tap starts is comes back on, and they will then be able to you know take all of the money that they've got from the Premier League. And if they can stay up, then they might be able to, you know, refinance, start again under new ownership. But they lose that final three nil, and at which point, that's when the huge decline really kicks in. If you're out of the Premier League for one year, with the size of the club, with the potential, they could have at least re-established themselves in the Premier League, at which point they would have been more more likely to have been bought by owners that would have wanted to own a Premier League club with potential. And Leeds still have that potential. But so what happens is they end up not just getting relegated from the Premier League, they get relegated from Division 1. They are now in Division 2 with these huge money problems going. They had multiple owners. And they've never quite recovered from that playoff final defeat. So they've eventually got back into the championship. But more years than not, they're lower mid-table. And so infrastructurally speaking, they're, they're just hugely behind. You know, they've had to sell their training ground. The stadium hasn't been really touched in any meaningful degree, which means that all the other clubs that they were competing with, so Chelsea, Arsenal, United, Liverpool, the Spurs, Everton, all of these clubs have now moved on. You know, they've been able to have brand new training grounds. They're getting brand new stadiums. And really, it will po- it's possibly going to take a generation for Leeds to get back, even to really where they were in the pre-Ridsdale years, which was, you know, m- mid to upper Premier League. So 6th, 7th, 5th, that kind of position. And the money that you need to, to even get into that position is now exponentially larger. They've had, you know, effectively, you know, 15, 20 years without Premier League football and without Premier League money. Which really brings us on to the sort of next sort of brick owners. So you've got 
Chelsea. Now Chelsea are an interesting one because really I'm probably going to at some point end up talking about doing a, a, a whole podcast about Roman Abramovich at which point we'll sort of touch on some of the topics I'm going to talk about now but in, in terms of just let's say the 90s is that you you have Ken Bates and you have the stadium so there was long battles in other words when sort of Chelsea went through a period of decline the stadium because of its location and value as a property not as a football stadium there was always the implicit fear that someone would basically get control of Chelsea the football club and move them out of Stamford Bridge and sell Stamford Bridge as a for housing for businesses and make a huge amount of money and leave Chelsea effectively homeless or having to move, and let's face it, they're not going to be able to move within, you know, that part of London. There just isn't the land that you would have for a football stadium. So you'd have to move far out into sort of West London, and in some more respects, I suppose, out of out of sight, out of mind. And so, sort of, Ken Bates comes in and really pulls, starts pulling the club up from the abyss. So from the situation where they were, you know, sort of, uh, not quite a yo-yo club, but they would go up, go down. Um, so when you get to the 90s, they finally get control of the ground through the CPO. And then you have, you know, sort of Matthew Harding comes in. He's a you know, T-boy that's made good, made his money, met his wife in the shed. And he wants to really, you know, become a benefactor in the same sort of vein of sort of Jack, Sir Jack Walker. And they have this battle between Bates and Harding, and that's set against the backdrop of the idea of the Chelsea Village. So Bates wanted to redevelop the stadium, but also add in you know, a hotel, restaurants, bars, nightclubs, and... In many ways, it was a sort of revolutionary move. In other words, he sort of, in some respects, saw the future. Is that you couldn't just have a. I suppose the, you're looking at the Taylor report in this instance. So what the Taylor report basically said is that you need a, all-seater stadium, and if you wanted to be in the Premier League, you'd need you know, a roof and all the rest of it, and so that was quite a large amount of money that was, you know, being pumped into the stadiums. And you could read, you would have, everyone had to redevelop the stadiums, but there were people that were thinking, well, we're putting millions of pounds into the stadium infrastructure, but it's only being used 20, 20, 25 times a season. You know, in the long term, how can we utilize this space better? And so you get, you know, you've had executive, you have executive boxes, you have conferencing facilities, and his idea was is that I can make with with Ken Bates I, I, I've tended to I, I've called him a Ponzi visionary is that he's got this sort of he's ruthless and he's got a business visionary but in certain respects almost seems to lack the money <laughs> in other words it's an imagining Chelsea Village is an imagining of football's future which in some ways was very accurate. But the issues with Ken Bates always comes down to 
in the end, Chelsea Village gets built, but it's not the success that it doesn't pay for itself and it doesn't help Chelsea get to the the next level in terms of its buying power over, let's say, Arsenal and Manchester United. In the end, Stamford Bridge is rebuilt, but it's only 42,500. And there's no further room for expansion because you've got the hotel, because you've got all the other bits and pieces. In the end, his business acumen really overweighed the long-term benefit to the club. So in other words, Arsenal redeveloped their stadium in a much more organic manner. In other words, they build the North Bank, they rebuild the clock end, and the capacity comes on to just under 38,000, well, just under 39,000. And But they have a fantastic team and fantastic manager, and they're winning the league. Whereby with... Bates, you've got the Chelsea Village and the money that was poured into that, but the club is still, they were still not quite able to compete with United, they weren't able to compete with Arsenal, there was still an element of the unfashionable underdogs, the sort of perennial underachievers, and in the end, the it creates a similar sort of situation to Leeds, in other words, the more and more he becomes obsessed with sort of Chelsea Village being his legacy, the more the debts come up. And it and that's why his legacy is very difficult really to to analyse. Because in certain respects he saves Chelsea in the eighties from you know a the vultures that would have basically you know sold Stamford Bridge off, bundled Chelsea off into the, you know, into West London somewhere, or they'd be sharing at Loftus Road, or they'd be at Craven Cottage, and that would have eventually damaged the club. They wouldn't have been able to, you know, get back into the Premier League and have the same amount of success that they had in the 90s when they, you know, won the League Cup, when they won the FA Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup... Yeah, there was no guarantee in the mid eighties that Chelsea were going to come back and you know recreate the heydays of the fifties, sixties, and you know early seventies. There was no guarantee. If you looked across the you know across the road, you had Fulham, and they'd spent many different many years in Division Three. There was no guarantee that Chelsea were going to be able to come back. And that they were going to be able to re-establish themselves. So what you have to give him tremendous credit for is understanding that Chelsea and the stadium is that for, if Chelsea would ever get back, it would have to be at Stamford Bridge. And his understanding of us, I suppose, the fans and the product of what football could mean. So in other words, all of the brick owners have a understanding of the power of the Premier League and what the product could do. So in other words, for Newcastle, the Kevin Keegan coming back, the St James's Park being redeveloped in the city centre, the rise of Newcastle, you know, the the money being poured in in terms of infrastructure spending, in terms of the city itself, 
and how Newcastle United became a symbol of that. You know, not just in the country of the rise of Newcastle, you know, with someone as famous as Kevin Keegan bringing Alan Shearer home, and also, in effect, you know, globally, you know, beating beating Barcelona. You know, and the sort of impact that Jack Walker knew that winning the Premier League title would have on Blackburn and you know local pride and how important that could be. Also, you know, even with Peter Risdale, the understanding of the joy that it could bring and the money that could be gained, you know, in terms of the Champions League success. Unfortunately, I suppose what you'd have to sort of come back to with brick ownership is that is that they were able to see the potential that they themselves were never able to quite profit from it. In other words, Blackburn have the success of winning 94-95 the league title, and that's it. That's their, their crest of the wave. And they fall away before it gets any worse. In other words, if they'd carried on trying to spend like that, they would have, you know, they would have been a you know, the original Leeds, they would have had that collapse. Leeds do have that collapse. Even, you know, the most successful of the bricks is Chelsea. But Ken Bates's desire to build the Chelsea village is almost what destroys the entire football club. In other words, they are hugely in debt. You know, two, you know, two three hundred million pounds. And they um, they're just, you know, surviving year by year by just about getting into the Champions League. And there's... Yeah, there's some element of reckoning coming, and they are saved by Roman Abramovich. Now, the the one brick that I haven't really mentioned, you know, yet is Tottenham. Now, that's a really interesting one in the sense that Sugar plays such a vital role. Is that when he comes into owning Tottenham, he's a local boy that's made good, and Tottenham are. Falling apart at the seams under Irving Scholar. You know, they're hugely in debt. You know, things are looking quite bad and they need someone to come in and save them. So this is someone who isn't a massive football fan, doesn't know a huge amount about it, but he sees the potential and you know takes over, buys the club, and then really assesses what it what the club is capable of. And for him, he sees the finance element of it. In other words, he can see the money that football can make from a commercial aspect of it. So he's one of the the main protagonists around Sky Sports getting the television rights. He's the one that basically goes to Sky and says, blow ITV out of the water. Because for him, what he can see is that essentially if Sky get the contract and they have long-term success with football is that they will need the sort of set-top box, and Amstrad, his company, are the ones that make the set-top box for Sky, and so he sees the profit in that, and obviously, therefore, the profits for Amstrad, and the, if the Premier League starts to grow, it's the profits for him, because if it's his investment, it's his football club. <laughs> and so, the brick owners basically built their clubs from the rubble of English football. So if you look at the 1980s, late 70s, early 80s, you had the 
first real wave of financial expansion. So you get clubs building these massive modern stands. So you have the East Stand at Chelsea, the West Stand at Spurs, uh, similar stand at Wolves. It's the first time that people started to see football in a commercial light. So it wasn't just building a roof over the home terrace so that you know, the fans didn't get pissed on in the rain. It was, oh, I see... They, they've seen it, I suppose, from America to an extent, but even, you know, there have been executive boxes in, in English football. The first one was at Old Trafford in the 60s. There was always that element that people could see that there was some financial gain that could be got from football. But it's too early. And, you know, the, the, the stands look essentially completely incongruous to the rest of these kind of declining Edwardian, you know, stands and terraces. You know, they, they look out of place and they cost so much money. All of them go through cost overruns and eventually leave the clubs, you know, teetering on the edge. And that's the same for Spurs, same for Wolves and Chelsea and a few other teams that did it. Because really, football clubs were not run as businesses. They had business... You know, they had company accounts, but they weren't organisations that would be able to finance, you know, multi-million pound building sprees and still maintain the club at, you know, at the level they were. And then you had the sort of culture war of the 80s with hooliganism, the decline in attendance. And really, it's only when you get to the beginnings of the Premier League that you that you had the creation of the Premier League, that you had the Taylor Report, that the whole sport itself would have to, within essentially five to ten years, would have to reform. So it wasn't just a handful of clubs building stands. Everyone would have to build new stands, new stadiums, redevelop it. You, know, you would then have to start taking things like the television, TV rights, more seriously. So you then get a situation where it's more competitive. It's not just going to either the BBC or ITV and seeing how much money you can get. It's the advent of collective bargaining. It's not a situation where you know the, the teams of the Premier League, the BRICS, are all ownership-led. Whereby the teams, the successful teams of the previous couple of generations were manager-led. Because the world was changing. It was more commercial. It, Manchester United was successful because of Alex Ferguson, but they were what underwrote that was the infrastructure, the training ground, the stadium, you know, the, the historic fan base, all of those bits and pieces, and the monetization that Manchester United, who were really the first, you know, they were the second club to become a PLC, but they were the first really to run with it and understand the scope of what and the potential that Manchester United had as a football club. So in other words, the brick owners are always constantly chasing Manchester United. They're all, you know, behind in that regards. So in other words, they've all they, they can all see the potential for what football and Premier League football can offer in terms of money, in terms of the But they were playing catch up. You know, they couldn't develop their stadiums quick enough. They couldn't develop the revenue screams to underwrite their expenditure so in other words you know there are moments that 
where Stuart nearly gets it. He spends you know a load of money for in ninety four ninety five. He manages to get Jurgen Klinsmann. Gets a couple of you know players, you know Romanian players from the successful Romanian team of the ninety four World Cup. But eventually, it's never enough to in the long term compete with the your traditions, your traditional teams like I was speaking about earlier. So in other words, Liverpool, Arsenal, you know Manchester United. And in the end, you know, in some ways, you know, because Sugar didn't have enough knowledge and it took him too many years to effectively get that knowledge up. In other words, you know, they only really finished redeveloping the stadium in the late 90s. So 99 is, you know, 98-99 is when they finished the North Stand and White Hart Lane's capacity goes to 36,200. But by this point, Manchester United, Old Trafford had been 55,000 since 1996. In the sense that with Chelsea is that, you know, what Bates did was he you know, redeveloped the stadium and you know, he built this wonderful legacy that really showed you where the football was going. In the end, it didn't really help Chelsea as a football club. They were you know, they had two hundred million pounds plus worth of debt, you know, partially from Chelsea Village, and from their sort of targeted spending that they had then you know really pushed in in the you know late nineties once they had a, you know had some success. And the amount of you know cost it was to maintain that was wasn't really matched by the revenues that football were producing. You, know, you didn't have the foreign TV rights. You know, the Champions League wasn't quite the cash cow. It was getting towards there. But if you look at Leeds and Chelsea, how close they were to the brink. Leeds went over the brink. And effectively, the difference between Leeds and Chelsea is simply that Chelsea had a redeveloped stadium, had a training ground, had you know Chelsea Village as a asset... <laughs> They, you know, they had liabilities, but once you took away the debt, there was still the potential. They had the, you know, a, a good team. They had a fan base, and you know, there's an element of glamour that Chelsea will always bring to English football. Whereby, if you look at the Risdale, in other words, the the differences between the the Leeds playing staff and the Chelsea in the late nineties, much of a muchness. The difference was is that Ellen Road was, you know, crumbling. The the training ground wasn't anywhere comparable to Chelsea's training ground and they were also saddled with near 200 million pounds worth of debt but with no actual assets for which to pay that off in the end Sugar spends a, a large amount of money at Tottenham but it's only really when he starts in the sort of late 90s when he gets the director of football model into thing and he's he lacked the footballing knowledge to hire the right people so in other words, he goes through managers, they spend quite a bit of money, but it's not particularly well organised. And it doesn't lead to any you know, long-term success. The difference is, is that with the targeted spending that Blackburn and Newcastle did, it been several years earlier, in the early 90s, when that kind of spend expenditure did give you they did get you from A to B. So in other words, you could in 1992 pick up a team in the lower ends of Division 2 and take them to the brink of the title or winning the title if you were willing to put in 20, 30, 40 million pounds. And as long as the person that you'd given that money to 
was able to you know utilize it and in Keegan and in Dalgleish they found early adapters which goes back to the, the my previous podcast they were the ones that created you know modern english football the modern premier league and they that's where the success happened to Newcastle and Blackburn but eventually you know the first wave brick owners weren't able to sustain that Blackburn then you know get relegated and but end the the 20th century just about into the premier league and just just remaining in there is success you know Newcastle end up having to repurpose Keeganism into FA Cup, you know, getting to the FA Cup final, as opposed to winning the trying to win the league, it's by the end of the century the tradition elites are still there, because it's Manchester United battling Arsenal every year for the league, and both of them have old school managers in Ferguson and Wenger, who were able were able to parlay the infrastructure and their own genius into building these two fantastic teams. But things are slowly but surely starting to change. Effectively, Bates and Risdale ran out of money. Risdale basically built Leeds on on sand, (laughs) and the house sank. (laughs) If you look at... Tottenham is that Sugar understood the financial benefits to owning Tottenham and increasing the Premier League because that helped his other business and it helped his investment in Tottenham. And so for every penny he spent on Tottenham, he understood that there would be a value towards that. In other words, he wasn't the patrician spending of Sir John Hall and Sir Jack Walker. They basically... You know, they'd had their moment of success and then retrenched because they simply didn't have the infrastructure or the money or the long-term decision-making ability to be able to compete with the Camelot of Manchester United and of the long-term, you know, success that Wenger was able to, you know, give to Arsenal. You know, Wenger, when he turns up in England, he has Dennis Burkamp. He has the Arsenal back four of... George Graham and in Newcastle in Blackburn in Chelsea and Leeds had shown the power of spend expenditure and how you could compete with the traditional elites your Liverpools your Manchester United your Arsenals but for each different reason those clubs weren't able to maintain that in other words you end the millennium with Chelsea in debt with things you know in other words, the the house still looks fantastic, but they're pawning the silver, you know, to make ends meet. You know, the Premier, the, the the new millennium, was a left the Premier League poised. In other words, was it going to be a situation where Arsenal and Manchester United? And the traditional elites and the traditional ownership structures, were they going to be the long-term success? In other words, if you look at it, Arsenal by this point are trying to build a you know, new stadium. 
because they understand that you know while Arsene Wenger's success in terms of his understanding of you know the foreign transfer market and his ability to get you know massive amounts of success out of an exist underachieving existing squad that has been allowed them to compete with United but in the long term to compete with Old Trafford and the money that the brand that Manchester United had become under you know the ownership of the Edwards family they were going to need more resource so that's where you get essentially you know Ashburton Grove they're looking to move from their traditional beloved home of Highbury to this new stadium so that they can then basically be on a level footing with Manchester United. The first wave owners had redefined English football. They had redefined the role of the manager. They had shown what targeted spending can do. That they were always running at a disadvantage. They would always run out of money. There wasn't enough revenue that could be gained from the Champions League, from the league, from television money or from the rebuilding of their stadiums to enable them to compete on a long-term basis. So the real question was, is what would happen if there was an owner that did have that money, that was essentially a new version of Jack Walker, someone who was able to really compete with Manchester United and with Arsenal? And so in 2003, you get Roman Abramovich flying into Chelsea, which I will talk about in part two. Thank you very much for listening.